I love Matt's song lighting, but he's got me totally confused. There's supposed to be like a, a song and then a prayer and then two songs, and then I'm supposed to have a break to tell me that it's about to come up here, and then you have the scripture reading, and he got me all messed up. But thankfully, he gave me a sheet of paper with all the order on it, and so I knew what was happening, and so that covers a multitude of sins, I think. Uh, I'm grateful that you're here. Hope that you had a great Mother's Day and enjoyed the singing tonight. I, I, he picks the right songs. Every time he's here leading singing, he, he picks the right songs and does it well. And his parents come to brag on him. His parents come from Piggott to brag on him. You know, They said, no, not really. It's for the grandkids. But still, that has to have some kind of, of move with him. Uh, do not forget next Sunday. Don't forget and be anticipating some great things about uh, the... the if you know some people who used to be uh, members here, maybe they've gone elsewhere, maybe they've moved just a little bit away, if you can invite them to come for this one time, this is the time you want them to come next Sunday at 2, if at all possible. And you will enjoy the evening. There'll be uh, so many things to do outside that you can interact, but you can also just bring a lawn chair, bring a lawn chair, and, and just uh, enjoy talking to each other outside. We know it's going to be nice weather because the elders have all together decided to pray for it all week. So it's not going to rain. It's going to be perfect. Uh, and it will be worth coming to. So please come and just, just be ready for some, for some fun together uh, next week. We're in Exodus chapter 21. Tonight uh, we will have our service. It will be a little bit shorter. I promise that. Uh, and by the way, this morning was like 23 minutes. Anybody notice that? Yeah, yeah, that was me, right? So anyway, so tonight, after service is over, after the final amen, please stay in your seats. We're going to have about a four to five minute memorial. It's a weird thing, and I'll explain it then. Um, but, but just don't, don't leave, don't move, just stay right where you are. It won't take very much of your time, but it's something we need to do as a church. So uh, be doing that uh, right after the final amen. Exodus chapter 21 we just finished up the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, and talking about each one of them and how they relate to us. Then it, Exodus goes into this section of these various um, miscellaneous, we would call them, laws. There's some 630 of these, right, in the Pentateuch everybody talks about. Uh, and so I decided, well, we've got to just kind of cover some of these in this, this three-chapter section. It's a little dangerous. I mean, this section of Scripture, Old Testament, is obsolete. It's been surpassed by the new covenant that we live under. And so it's irrelevant, essentially, to your life. So here on Sunday night, we're going to have a lesson on these random laws that are irrelevant to your life. I'm risking putting you into a coma, right? That's what you're hearing with your mind. And yet, on the other hand, the New Testament comes along and says, but this, is, th this, this function of the Old Testament for a believer is still very important. Don't go ahead and rip that Old Testament out and say, all I need is the new. It's written for our learning and our instruction. There's something to be gained from this. It is not authoritative for us in doctrine or ethics, but there's incredible value in learning principles that still apply to our lives. So, at the risk of lulling you into sweet sleep here in a few moments, I'm going to keep it short because brevity covers a multitude of sins. Amen, right? Yes. First observation. The first thing he does after he finishes Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments, he turns to 21, which is our 21, not theirs. But in 21, about these rules, uh, these are the rules that you will set before them when you buy a Hebrew slave. And I want to stop right there. These are rules for when they get into the promised land. 
He's preparing them right now for when they get to the promised land. And the first thing he wants to talk about is slavery. Now this automatically is a problem for me. I'm sitting here, I've always wondered, who's the first person to look at another person and say, I think I can force them into slavery to me. They are subservient in every way to me. That would be one thing, a human looking at another human being. That's not all that surprising. But here's God giving these instructions to his people about life in the promised land. Why does slavery have any role in the life of God's people in the promised land? Wouldn't you think God would just rid it, rid the world of slavery? Why would he even have such a thing in his economy? When you get into that land and you get into slavery, I'm going to tell you some parameters You've got to keep in mind something. The slavery we think of in the American experience is nothing like the slavery of the Hebrew people. It was not a a different race of people that they were enslaving simply because of their color or their ethnic background. None of that. It was nothing that they were abused. It was nothing where they were doing work that nobody else would do. A Hebrew slave and a free person who's working for you would do the same job together side by side. The law would not allow inhumane treatment. These were like indentured workers. So it's nothing like the American experience. And yet every time we see the word slavery, we insert the American experience in our history into it and say it's the same thing, and that is unfair. Israel had a very vivid memory of slave life themselves. God says, you remember what it was like. I won't let you treat slaves like this because you remember what it was like to be a slave in Egypt. And so he prohibited that kind of behavior. Slaves were included in every part of life, even in the religious uh, involvement of Israel. When you think about the uh, Sabbath law, for instance, number four, it makes sure you know in chapter 23, verse 12, he makes sure you know that that's especially for the slave and animals. Slaves could not be made to work on the Sabbath day. Now, nations around Israel all practiced slavery of a very cruel sort. Israel was not allowed to practice it that way. How a man treated his slaves in the nations around the people of Israel was never talked about because it was his property. He could treat them any way he wanted to, but not so in Israel. If you beat a slave... He was to be avenged. I want you to look at chapter 21, verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he will be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged. The slave is his money. You do not mistreat him that way. And if abuse brought injury, chapter 21, verses 26 and 27, any injury at all, even a tooth, he was set free. These were civil laws that a slave could appeal to on his own behalf, and the civil people of the culture would honor it. Later in Deuteronomy, if a slave runs away, you don't return him, you give him asylum, which is unheard of in the ancient world. All I'm saying is that this is an economy, and even in the promised land, surely we know this is true. There are some people in a culture who cannot be responsible for themselves, who have to who have to give themselves over to somebody else to care for them because they just don't have what it takes to take care of themselves. In Israel, if that happened, you indentured yourself to somebody who was your master and they treated you with respect and provided all the things that you needed and you worked off that that indebtedness, but never with inhumane treatment. 
So while they did have slavery, it was nothing like we know it. Second thing I want to notice, chapter 21, verse 10, has to do with marriage. This is an odd thing. A man could buy his wife, right? It's, it's like buying a slave, but it becomes, she becomes his wife. But this is one of the neatest verses anywhere because it describes exactly what is an obligation of a husband to a wife. So chapter 21, verse 10. If he takes another wife, so he's got this slave, makes his wife, he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her. Notice the three obligations of marriage. This is the only place anywhere in scripture that says the specific obligations involved in a marital relationship. Her food, her clothing, her marital rights. Those are the things that are being included in a marriage covenant. What happens if he gets another wife and he disregards his first wife? If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing with no payment of money. She doesn't have to buy her slavery, doesn't buy her freedom back. She gets to go away free. This, I believe, is in the mind of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. When the unbeliever leaves, no longer providing these three things that are supposed to be provided in marriage, when he leaves, no longer providing these three, she is free and no longer bound. It's this language right here. She walks away with no obligations whatsoever to that relationship that he left behind. I'm just going to leave it there because he does, but there is this other thing uh, in chapter 22, verse 16. If a man has uh, marital relations with a woman before marriage, this is a, not adultery, this is fornication, he does have the option of paying the father of the woman that he seduced, it says, and marry her but he does not have to give permission. So he slept with her before marriage, but there's no forcing of a marriage to make that right, which is what people used to think years ago, not so much now, but even in biblical times. Then there's the concept, a third one in here would be uh, restitution. Um, we have nothing about this in the New Testament. Well, that's what's interesting to me. In order to repent and be forgiven, do you have to pay restitution in the New Testament? Not a word. And yet it seems like you would, right? If you steal from somebody and, and, so, and you want to make it right, don't you pay it back? There's no really indication of that unless it assumes the Old Testament principle of restitution. And in that case, it gets very specific. So if you steal something you have to repay it four or five times. If a man digs a pit for whatever reason and another uh, person's animal comes along and falls in that pit, breaks the leg, they have to kill the animal, the man has to repay that because he dug the pit. Something I did adversely affected you, so I'm gonna repay you for it. If a man starts a fire and it gets out of control and causes damage, the man who started the fire pays for it. If an animal gets loose from my, you know, from my, uh, whatever you call it, fold or herd or whatever, and goes to another man's land and starts eating on that land and consumes his stuff on his land, I pay for it. If I borrow something that gets stolen, I have to swear to you I had nothing to do with it. And then if I find the thief, he has to pay double. You borrow an animal and it dies, you replace it. Would these still be in effect today? Are these principles still there? 
Never is it said, but we know in the New Testament there's a couple of, uh, there's a couple of passages to talk about. Let's summarize the law and the prophets, and it goes like this. Whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. That's King James Version, can you tell? Um, and then the other one is love your neighbor as yourself, and then love, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. It assumes that that wraps up basically everything the, the, the Old Testament tries to talk about. So let's say you do steal. I'm looking at Rob Robinson. Robin, Robinson steals something uh, from Jamie over here. Uh, and it's discovered. And, and whether it's discovered or not, he steals from him. And later on, he repents. Does he have to pay it back? Does he have to return it and pay it back? Not a word in the New Testament about that. But it would seem to me if you're going to treat somebody the way you'd want to be treated, you're going to, you are going to give restitution to that thing that you stole. And that's why I think this extra mile thing, if you look at chapter 23, verse 4, there is a little bit of an extra mile thing. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey, now this is weird, you're not going to do this in Jonesboro, Arkansas, right? I'm not going to find Wesley's ox in my yard. It's just not going to happen. So we look at that and that, that could never happen. But there are ways that this could happen today. That cat that he's got could end up at my house. Maybe, maybe have to return it. The idea is a, a, an enemy's ox comes and you find it going astray. You need to, don't just not kill it. Take it back to him. The extra mile is already there in the Old Testament. I'm going to argue that um, Restitution is still a principle even in the New Testament era, and a lot of this is assumed. It's assumed that you've been taught this. How does Zacchaeus know the proper way to pay back what he has taken unlawfully? How does he know that? Well, he's operating under the old law, but I wonder if the new law would want him to honor the same. One last thing. God's view of the poor, the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner. God's emphatic about this. I hope you listened carefully to the reading a moment ago. Well done. Chapter 22, verses 21 to 27. God is emphatic, and he is repetitious, and he is serious about it. You do not mistreat the sojourner. Does that have any bearing on political discussions and spiritual treatment of immigrants in our area? Yeah. There are political things that need to be talked about, but when it comes to our spiritual treatment and moral treatment of people who are sojourners, Scripture is our guide, and we are not to mistreat that sojourner. And if you do, God has some strong words. He says, you know full well what it was like, and I won't be lenient with you. And he repeats it in chapter 23 and verse 9. And you don't mistreat widows. You don't mistreat children who are fatherless. They'll cry out to me, and I will answer in a way that will burn you. Just in case you wondered, that's not a good thing. And when you lend to a poor person, you do not charge interest. If you take his coat for collateral, you return it to him at night so that he doesn't get cold. If he gets cold and he cries out to God, you are in his crosshairs. That's how serious God is about how we treat people. Those are the highlights of this passage. We are not under these strictly as laws, but we follow a Lord who kept them perfectly. And certainly that leads us to understand that there is a point to this. If Jesus kept these, then we in following Jesus would do the same. These are timeless things. Listen to the news, turn on the news tomorrow night, and you're gonna hear something about human trafficking, the modern day slavery. 
There's something out there in this world, and this pertains to that. We treat these people with respect and with help. Marriage, what's the obligations in our marriages to each other? What kind of ways should we treat each other? This passage has something to say about that. When we do something wrong, whether intentionally or inadvertently, something we do negatively affects somebody else. We care about making that right. And when you deal with the poor and the alien and the child who has no one to care for him, you better know this is a central issue even today because pure religion undefiled before God, the Father, is to look after the widows and the fatherless. Still today, his passion for these people in these circumstances hasn't changed. Those with power and resources and how they treat people who do not have access to either is a test for how we view our creator and the people he created. As we grapple with the loving response and the spiritual response we're to make to the immigrant, to the legal or illegal immigrant, to the fatherless, I like to refer to what Jennifer Douglas will say sometimes when you talk to her or even on Facebook, if this kid knocks on your door at night, what will you do? That moment right there may be the most spiritual moment of your life. It's a test. How do you really view God? I'm going to talk about that more in just a second in the memorial, but I believe these are excellent guidelines. And these, while they are old law things, and these are illustrations way back there in an agricultural setting, the principles are still the same. Treat people with love and fairness. Do to them as you would have them to do to you. That's a New Testament principle too. It's an Old Testament illustration that provides some kind of oomph to the New Testament command. We do care about how we treat people, and so does God. Those are the laws of Exodus 21 to 24 that no matter how old they are, they seem to be forever relevant. So be careful how you treat people. Be careful how you handle your marriage. Be careful with all these things that you could possibly do that might, might negatively affect somebody else because you do care and it does, it does matter and God does too. There's anyone here this evening that for whatever reason needs to respond. You've never responded to the gospel. And you, and you know what God the Father is like. He doesn't want you to be fatherless either. He wants to be your father. He wants to be your God. And he wants you to love his son and his family. This evening, if for whatever reason this is a time for you to respond to the gospel, we make it available to you. And if for some reason you've treated someone amiss... There's no better way to be faithful to the text we've talked about and the principles we talked about than finding the person you've wronged and fixing it. Maybe tonight you don't need to go forward. Maybe you need to go across an aisle. Whatever it is to make sure that you're at peace with people, do it as we stand and as we sing to encourage you.